Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 117. In this episode, we're talking about the sexual reformation with Amy Bird. Amy Bird is the author of a number of books, including Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and most recently, the book that we're excited to talk about today, The Sexual Reformation, Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman, published by Zondervan. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was lovely to have Amy Bird back on the podcast again today to talk about her new book. Amber and Daniel, what were some of the takeaways that you two had from our conversation with Amy? Well, I think her new book is doing a lot of really important things, um, and that really came out in this conversation. One, her book offers a really, really excellent contribution to studies of Song of Solomon and how to think about this book in a way that brings in the historical church and that unpacks it in its richness. And then from there begins to think about gender and sexuality, which I think is a a fabulous approach. I also appreciate the fact that she positions herself with the historic church versus some of the contemporary uh, examinations along along these lines. And so she actually really plants and affirms herself uh, in the space of those who've gone before us. So I think the scrutiny that she receives is really out of place, given the fact that she's actually drawn closer to who we are versus further away from who we are. All right, and here's our conversation with Amy Bird. Well, we are delighted to welcome back to the pod, Amy Bird, for the fourth time. This is the most amount of times that we've had somebody join our pod, so we are so delighted to have you back, Amy. Returning champion, welcome back to the Two Cities Podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like your little mascot now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the number one bird on the Two Cities is Amy Bird. That's right. That's right. I hope Mike's listening. Let let it be known. Yeah. Well, Well, Amy, we're so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Sexual Reformation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do in that book, what its thesis is, and and what kind of ground you cover? Yeah, so I think that my books have kind of built off one another. And I've, you know, I started writing as a, a lay woman in the church who just found it, you know, found a struggle in trying to be a thinking woman in in my spaces in church and wanting to learn more about theology and thinking that, you know, discipleship would, you know, very much a part of my discipleship would be learning more about who God is and how that affects our everyday life. And and I was having a hard time being invested in that way. And then also being able to like contribute in that way um, to see any reciprocity there. So that's kind of what got me writing in the first place. And with each book, it's kind of opened up another can of worms of questions. And so, um, you know, I was, I was here interviewing with you guys after I wrote recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. And, uh, you know, that brought up some, some critique and backlash, um, not the interview, but the book. And, um, you know, as I thought more about that, um, just in addressing this whole movement of quote unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, and even like in conversation with egalitarianism 
And, um, and even in conversation with the secular culture and the sexual revolution all around us, I feel like we're talking so much about what man and woman can or can't do, which are important things. But, um, you know, I really wanted something more meaningful, like to get into like the theology of our sexes, the meaningfulness behind our sexes and, and seeing our sexuality as as gift. And then to grasp that eschatological story that our bodies tell. So that's really what my aim is in writing the sexual reformation. And, and in the title, I'm kind of saying like, we don't, we don't have this down real well in our teaching in the church. So I really do think we need, even throughout church history, kind of looking back, seeing what's been taught about our sexuality, comparing that to scripture and reforming to that as a church. So um, my subtitle is Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman. And so that's my aim. And um, I, I feel like in the song, you know, there's that aim, but there's also a very personal element to it for me because, you know, going through the whole process of trying to use um, the church discipline and all these things as I'm being harassed by church officers in my um, old denomination, you know, went through a lot of spiritual abuse and it was traumatic. And, um, you know, the one place where I was really ministered to in God's word was the Song of Songs. And, you know, I would say that to some people and they, you know, I get the cricket. So the funny looks like, what? <laughs> How is it the song is what is ministering to you so deeply right now? And I really wanted to share that. And I think in the Song of Songs, like that's where we find the answer to all of these questions. Um, that's where we find. Christ's intimate presence with his bride and God's spousal love for his people and this whole beautiful typology of man and woman. And, and, it's, and it's kind of like a microcosm of all of scripture. It tells us the whole story right there in concentrate. So, you know, I have a very personal element and maybe even like a side motive <laughs> to really want to get people back into the song of songs, like the way that the early church fathers were and even the medieval church, even the Puritans. Yeah, I'm wondering what are some of the people that you have found, you mentioned the Puritans, early church fathers, who are these voices that you have been um, resourcing for your study of the songs and how, how have mm. they impacted you? Because I, I, I hear you talk about Song of Songs in a way that's very different from the way that typical kind of contemporary exegetical studies of Song of Songs go. Yeah, oh, so many. I have this whole like bookshelf next to me. It's this funky looking bookshelf of um, all my books on the song. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I don't know who my favorites are. I guess contemporary wise, I think Ellen Davis is one of my, my favorite commentaries on the song. I, I find myself going to her a lot. It's such a, a short, succinct little commentary even, but uh, it's, it's so, there's so much meaning in there. But um, I, I love reading um, St. Teresa of Avila on the song. Like, I just love the, the approach that she takes of doing like the meditations on them. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with all of her interpretive uh, <laughs> methods, but I, I, I get a lot out of it. Um, Origen, I love reading uh, him, Gregory of Nyssa on the song, Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, those are some of the older ones, John Owen, you know, one of the Puritans that I think has written really well on the Song of Songs and even Charles Spurgeon, he's, he's got some pretty good sermons on the song. So this would be maybe some of my favorites. And then I would also say that there's some really good, uh, more contemporary Catholic theologians that Roman Catholic theologians that I appreciate, uh, Pope John Paul II, 
uh, Christopher West, uh, Paul Griffiths. So those are some that I've been going to as well. Amy, coming back to Song of Songs more, I think you highlighted the fact that it's somewhat of a ambiguous book in, in the kind of the, the view of the evangelical Protestant canon, right? We, we don't hear mm-hmm. much about it. What would you say is like the, the key avoidance of it or obscurity of it? Why is it so obscure? So, you know, historically, um, the song was interpreted as an allegory of Christ's love for the church and the individual soul of every believer. Um, and so that, that's how the early church interpreted it. That's how the medieval church interpreted it. Um, Puritans, and you know, all the way up until, I guess, uh, you know, modern critical thinking. And then it became like, oh, you know, they have over-allegorized the song. And, and some of that argument, you know, has a leg to stand on. We've gotten, you know, they, they went into some allegorism, right? And, and so everything's this code to be cracked. And, um, and so there were some, you know, valid critique in that that we want to look at. But what they were also saying is, you know, uh, you know, historically, the church has just been kind of afraid of this you know, very overtly sexual and erotic language. And so they had to allegorize it because they didn't want it to really be about what it is about, which is sex. So then we we get this very literal, you know, translation or interpretation, I should say, of the Song of Songs. And even like, um, you know, also looking at uh, Egyptian love poetry and saying, okay, like, you know, there's a lot of parallels here. So, you know, we've got commentators today saying that there's no theology in the Song of Songs, that it's not about God at all, and that it's merely about love and sex, which to me just blows my mind to say that a book in the Bible is not theological, to say that it's not sacred, uh, that we have a book in the canon that isn't sacred. Um, So I, I would like to say that yeah, I'm definitely think we need to go back to the allegory. I don't know how you can not read the song allegorically. And, you know, we have Christ telling us how to interpret scripture on the road to Emmaus saying that, you know, it all points to him. So he's in there. So how is he in there? We need to ask that question. And the early church, you know, they referred to the song of songs as the holy of holies of scripture. So, um, you know, they would look at the song and say, like, if, if you're looking at scripture and you want to go to the place where you can get behind the veil to the most intimate presence of Christ, go to the song of songs. That's where you're going to find it. And, and now, you know, I think that we've had such bad interpretations of the song that there's also the fear, like, you know, we've got Mark Driscoll's uh, kind of like, beware, don't be a Mark Driscoll. And you know, that's a good warning. We don't want to do that. And so I think that there's also this fear and where pastors aren't even preaching on the song really much anymore. You don't hear a lot about that. There's not as much writing about it. And I think there is this fear. And some of it I think is good. Like we don't want to get this wrong, especially when we're talking about God and, and all the sexual language in there. But um, there it is right in the center of our Bibles. And the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. We've got the major prophets talking about uh, God's love for Israel in the sense of, you know, spousal love and, and, and adultery, you know, of, of Israel, of his people. Um, we've got uh, in Ephesians, Paul talking about how marriage points to this great mystery of Christ's love for his bride and his union with the bride. And, and then we've got, you know, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. 
So, and there we have it right in the middle of scripture, um, you know, the picture. And it's full of eroticism. It's full of desire. It, it's got all kinds of metaphor and imagery in there working in, into that. Um, so I, I think it's important. There's a lot of treasures that we find in the song, a lot of intertextual um, echoes and allusions and references. So I, I would love to see us going back to the song and reading it canonically. It's so good to, and when you're describing it like that, you think about these, these marriage themes throughout scripture, mm -hmm. these, these echoes, these foretellings and the culmination with the, the wedding piece of the lamb. And I think what's so amazing about that is how it shows that there is that scripture is telling this, this cosmological story that we're yes. all part of. Um, and so these, these wedding metaphors, this isn't just strictly for people who are married, right? Like right. Song, song of Songs is like the book that you're only allowed to crack open if you're married, you know, this mm -hmm. only applies to you in those certain circumstances, which then can make singleness feel like you can't enter into something that scripture yes. has, you're like forbidden from this one part. But this is a story that's so much bigger than that, that all yes. of us are caught up in. And, mm -hmm. and I love how you're bringing that out. Yeah. I mean, I think we find in the song that joy in marriage or in singlehood is, is found in the same way, you know, and that's in, in having our desires properly oriented vertically first. And I think those who are married can be the first to say that, you know, your spouse is not going to satisfy all of your longings. And, and we're not to look, you know, what a burden to put on a spouse. So, um, you know, I think it's a message for, like you're saying, singles and marrieds and, and where our true desires um, are met and consummated. And then that overflows into all of our other relationships. You know, it's funny, Amber, <laughs> that one contemporary, uh, you know, pretty popular commentary I was reading, it was saying that the song is a message for singles to like take a cold shower because of the three adjurations in there, I guess. <laughs> I'm struggling to <laughs> understand that one. But um <laughs> but say the Proverbs is a message for men like that. Right, exactly. But but those kinds of in interpretive lenses, they're they're just so impoverished when you're talking about something that is so intertextually rich with all these yes. metaphors and this rich typology that's there to unpack. And sometimes I think when we're more on uh, kind of a lay level or in just kind of the, the everyday church, it's almost like we prize clarity and overtness. Like, you know, we don't mm -hmm. want to make a mistake. We want the gospel to be clear. We want yes. to think about things. We don't want to play with things, right? Like, I think it comes from that place, but and maybe some like modernist conceptions of hermeneutics as well. But it's like we sacrifice the mind blowing uh, yes. experience of scripture as this thing that is so rich that we can't just put our thumb on that ushers us into this kind of intimate encounter. With yeah, and I think what we learn in the song is that, you know, we can get caught up so much into doctrinal statements, which are, you know, very important um, to, to teach us about who God is. But there's something that doctrine, doctrinal statements just can't do. We're, you know, we're not, you know, just brains on a stick, as they say. And the song, it, it evokes longing. It does something. You're not just reading it. It does something while you're reading it. And it shows us that the love of God requires so much more than our brains. It, 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 it summons all of our senses. 
and it, it breaks open our imaginations and, and our curiosity. And these are just as important to our faith as, you know, the propositional statements that we want to dot our I's and cross our T's on. Um, and it's something like, like you said, mind blowing that it takes us into. It's an experience. And then I think we see then that our eschatological imaginations are ignited and that we're like, whoa, like this is God's love for us is so much more than we can ever imagine. And he is trying to prepare our souls for love with him now. I'm interested in the, you know, some of the allegorical uh, interpretations that you're drawing upon uh, within Jewish tradition. The Song of Songs is is one of the five great scrolls, the Megillot, that that are read throughout the, the liturgical year, and Song of mm-hmm. Songs is read as pass at, at Passover, Passover as a um, allegorical telling of the relationship between Israel, God and Israel. Curious if that's something that you've reflected on, or if you have anything you'd like to share with us about that. Yeah, I mean, I talk a, a little bit about that in the book, and I think that it is, I wanted to get this one book to recommend, actually, pulled off of my shelf, Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. I think that um, Chloe Sun does a really good job of, of answering your question there in that book, but um, and she has a whole section on it, too, being read during the Passover, and it's interesting because you know, the Israel, Israelites saw the song kind of telling the whole story, you know, the, their whole Jewish history in there. And so you've got the Exodus and, and everything explained in this poetry in the song. So in a sense, reading it then um, at that point in the calendar year is, is kind of rehearsing their history and God's love for them and his faithfulness to them in it. So there's just so many angles to the song. It just blows my mind how many treasures there are in there. And and you can do these studies and then go back to the song and see like, yeah, there it is. That's just so amazing. And in in addition to the allegorical elements, do you also see a a more kind of, you know, not not literal, because of course it's embedded in euphemistic metaphors, but do you also see like genuine sexuality uh, within the Song of Songs? Is it mere allegory or is it kind of two two levels? Like how would you kind of articulate that? I mean, I think I would articulate it as primarily you have to give it the allegorical reading in order to get the good application and what it teaches us about sexuality. Because, you know, we don't look to like our sexuality to understand about God's love for his people, we look to Christ first. Um, I think Robert Jensen explained it, and that's another one I like to to read on the song. He explains it, it's just kind of like with righteousness, like we don't look to our own righteousness (laughs) to learn about it so much as we do look to Christ and his righteousness. And then as we learn about it through that, then we can apply that in our lives here. So I do think that there's a lot of application and, and I'm really, you know, drawing on that in my book, as I'm focusing on, you know, our sexuality as being created man and woman and, and our relationships in that by going to the song. So, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely. We can go there for that, but I would take that as a secondary um, application and reading. I, I like how you are thinking about that, like thinking of the big story and then finding ourselves in that story. Right? Yeah. To the, the other exactly. way, around, which I think is helpful. And I think it also changes the conversation on mm-hmm. our sexuality as well, moving away from kind of this deontological 
rules, roles, regulations. This is what women do, men do. And it's ushering into, it's like reframing the conversation for us and in kind of a therapeutic way, not just a didactical way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, here's the right teaching about this issue. It's first and foremost, I think this might be what you're talking about, just restoring the personhood and, you know, our, yes. the wholeness that we have as, mm-hmm. uh, in our relationship to God and one another. But I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those applications. You know, how is this book therapeutic for us as sexual beings in the world in which we live right now? Yeah, there's so many angles in answering that question. But I would say, you know, when you're looking just horizontally, um, we get this sexuality that's kind of rooted in cultural mores. And that be, can become very legalistic. And it, it can also really just lead us, it leads us to despair and shame because um, our sexuality then becomes things really that we're trying to put on, you know? And we have a lot of this teaching in the church, um, you know, how to be a masculine male, <laughs> feminine female, as if these are things that we need to put on. And, you know, many, many, many don't measure up to whatever that picture is. But when we orient it differently and, and when our eschatology, or our sexuality is more eschatology rooted, rooted in our eschatology. Um, Then we have this, you know, that leads us to glory and it points us to Christ and his unitive love for us, like, and how male and female point to this coming together, this unitive love. Um, And so that's something that lifts us up. And I think, you know, when we look, men and women are looking to Christ, you know, he, he, He's the one that actualizes us as persons. You know, he's the one who um, shows us reality about who we are. Um, And then he's the one that then dignifies us as men and as women. And so then we look at it. And to me, I I see this in the language of gift a lot. And I, I see this picture of man and woman showing the picture of Christ accepting a gift from the father of the bride and, and enjoy doing everything that he did um, to redeem us so that we will have eternal communion with the triune God and one another. I mean, that is huge. And then when you see that picture, then, you know, then we look at one another as gift as well, because our bodies are kind of like icons telling this story, um, making visible the invisible. And, and I think that that is something that um, we can then have a respect for um, how each person then is also, you know, not just putting these abstract um, tropes of gender, but that we're unique, um, unrepeatable human beings. And, and so that's valuable and, and dignifying as well. I think it's so good that you, you brought up iconography because like when I think about like how we view that uh, mm-hmm. in, in Protestant tradition, right, is, is very scrutinizing. Yes. And, you know, to parallel that with our bodies and how we yeah. scrutinize our bodies. I mean, it's just so, so much of a highlight that I think you, you drew out. I, I wonder from your perspective, like how... How do we talk within the context of our churches about sexuality with the assumption that sexuality is goodness, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, its, in its essence, right? Sexuality, yeah. like any other area or any other topic of discussion, of course, theologically has an element of marring by sin, but it's not inherently sin. But it seems like we approach sexuality 
as it's almost akin to sin, right? Any, mm-hmm. any expression of it, any display of it, um, mm-hmm. any, any suspicion of some form of sexuality is viewed with this almost hypersensitive sinfulness to it. So how do, how do we realign that piece? I think, because that speaks to your, your sense of like iconography is like this, this, this glorification of, of, of ourselves when we're actually saying, no, we're actually glorifying a biblical perspective, a truly biblical perspective of manhood mm-hmm. and womanhood, where when we see our bodies as whole beings, we see God yeah. as one who's a whole creator uh, that has created us. So just love your thoughts as I, as I ruminate. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting to see that, um, you know, male and female telling this story then of Christ's exclusive love for his bride. Um, it's exclusive, right? And so I think that we have this covenantal aspect to it that is so important for us to teach. And within that covenantal aspect, then you see this freedom and belonging. And so within a marriage, you're going to show that in in erotic ways, you know, and and that's a wonderful free thing. But even in the song, you also see um, the the words that the, the groom uses for, you know, the bridegroom uses for the bride, you know, he calls her sister. Um, he invites her, you know, he, he beckons her voice. Um, you know, he's giving it's eroticism. I think we get all wrong. You know, in in our culture, it's all about taking and consuming and that's just not what it is. It's a self giving, it's a gift of self. And so it's, it's a laying down of self. And so I think that, you know, we, we need to recover a teaching on eroticism for one thing and the goodness of it. And, and we see that right in the song. Um, but then also, I think just um, the intimacy that we all need that isn't always taught. We t- immediately tie intimacy to eroticism. And so, and I think this is something that um, the gay community is really struggling with in the church. Um, you know, if you want to say same-sex attracted or celibate gay. Um, and I think that we have something to learn here that um, we all need intimacy and we are brothers and sisters. And so um, this is something really important. And you even look in scripture and you see Christ and the way he dignifies women and his relationships with them were rich. Same with Paul, you know, and, and they're both quote unquote single, right? So, um, you know, I just think that these are, there's so many more rich applications that we can make this way that we need to recover in the church. And, you know, I talked, a lot about that in my book, Why Can't We Be Friends? <laughs> because I think that we have so tied intimacy to just marriage. And, um, and so anything else is suspect, you know, whether it's, you know, those struggling with same-sex attraction or, you know, single people in the church, you know, they're just prospective affairs or people to marry off, you know, and, and then those who are married who can't talk to anybody else of the opposite sex. Um, we've hypersexualized one another. And I think it's a shame because um, we've taken the language of the culture and brought it into the church. And we have a much more glorious picture that we can show. And I think the song would be a really good place for us to go to be able to learn about that. I'm wondering what the range of topics that you discuss in your book are, um, particularly about gender and sexuality. Um, what are, what are some of the things that you get into and, and how do you apply the Psalm to that? I mean, obviously without giving too much of your book away, cause we won't <laughs> read, it, read it too, but what can we expect? Yeah. So, well, first of 
first of all, I kind of introduced why we need a sexual reformation. Like, am I making too big of a deal about this? So I kind of survey through the history of the church, how we've spoken about men and women. Um, and then I get into, you know, introducing the song of songs as, you know, this is where we're going to look at primarily. And I, I teach a, you know, a whole chapter on just on the song and, and what it represents. Then I get into kind of the typology of male and female. And this chapter is called Our Bodies Speak. And so I talk about, and I get into a lot of the intertextual references there from the song um, that all of a sudden you see, I mean, you just can't pick the song up out of the canon and just look at that. Like there's tons of strings everywhere and it's so beautiful. Um, and those, I like to kind of refer to it. I don't do this in the book, but these intertextual references and allusions, I kind of like to refer to them as an old cartoon I watched growing up, Saturday morning cartoons. It was like the Wonder Twins. And there are these superpower twins that, uh, that they couldn't activate until they bumped fists, right? And once they bumped this, they said, you know, Wonder Twin powers activate and then they could turn into different things and beat the bad guys up. But um, I think that that's what these texts do in a lot of ways is they, they bump fists and then they activate each other in new ways. So we see multiple meanings here. And I think it really enhances, um, you know, the first readings that we have of those texts by activating these other texts. And it teaches us something new and uh, makes visible the invisible once again. So I have a whole chapter on our body speaking. Then I, you know, I, I tackle this, this topic of desire because um, not only is the song just, you know, such a book about desire and, and that, you know, what makes it kind of something we want to keep at arm's length, I think a lot of times in the church, but um, just the way that we've looked at desire, especially as it's connected to the woman. So I kind of go to that Genesis three sixteen verse and, 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 talk about more uh, contemporary innovations to interpreting this verse and how it's even changed some of our Bible translations and how it really just kind of changes the way that we view women in scripture and in our churches and in our homes and in our vocations and our neighborhoods. Um, so I think that's an important chapter is just getting to the root of what that means, uh, what, the, what that desire means. Then I look at sexuality as gift, which I've kind of touched on a little bit already in this interview, which I think is really important. I have another chapter um, speaking on typology, um, particularly of woman. Um, and this chapter is called Sometimes the Last Man Standing as a Woman. And uh, that was probably my favorite one to write. Um, but, you know, it gets into some pretty cool stuff, I think, with just the association that we see in Old Testament uh, scripture of you know, woman is associated with the land and with the temple. And so, you know, it's really pointing to, um, you know, how her body represents sacred space. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting to look at like Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 62 and Hosea 14 and just see all of these illusions with the song, but also these connections with um, woman um, as Zion which is, you know, pretty fascinating typology there. Um, and, and then we see that picture um, in the, at the end in Revelation, that woman does reveal the end game, that uh, here we see the bride of Christ coming down from heaven by God, you know? So it's just like amazing to see that picture at the end. And there she is wearing Christ's radiance. And, and that is the collective multi-ethnic, beautiful bride of Christ 
I, there's so many applications for that, I think. And then I kind of end with male and female voice and just how, um, you know, Diane Langberg talks about, you know, part of what it means to be human is to have a voice. And so I look at the voices in the song, which is really interesting because, you know, here in these patriarchal times, we have the woman's voice is dominant. Um, and she bookends the song. She opens it. She closes it. Um, it's immodest even. Um, at, uh, Christ beckons her voice twice. That's the last words of the bridegroom to, to the woman in the song is, let me hear your voice. Um, and, you know, just what that means for the church, what that means for everyone in the church and how we're to use our voices um, to testify to Christ's love for us. I love that beckoning the woman's voice. It reminds me, I don't know if you saw Malcolm Geit's poem on uh, the Feast of the Ascension that just came uh, out. I, read that. I don't think I've read that one yet, but I love I love reading his poetry. Yeah, you need to read this one because he has this look breathtaking up. line at the very end where mm. he's talking about how um, it's similar kinds of things. Like we see the surface of things that we miss, like the glimmer of the angel's wings or however he says it, like the ways that God's working in the unexpected and the invisible. Yeah. But then it comes down to, you know, Gabriel um, announces to Mary that she's with child, but then at the very end, it, it says, but then time stops you know, and Gabriel didn't even move a feather or something like that. But then the last line is, and the word as the word was waiting on her word, mm. word with the capital W first yeah. on her word. And it's just so breathtaking because that is the, let me that gives me goosebumps. Yeah, it is. I know. And, and, and he's so invitational in that he's drawing it out, right? She's even kind of hiding in, in, behind the clefts of the rock. And he says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice because your face is lovely and your voice is sweet. Um, there's such a playfulness in their voices, which just shows this trust and this freedom and belonging, this intimacy. They um, repeat one another back and forth, back and forth throughout the song. So it's just like they're affirming what the other one is saying about them and seeing one another through each other's eyes. And there's just, yeah, I mean, I feel like I just scratched the surface of, you know, all the wonderful things in the song. And there's just so many different uh, topics you can, you know, chapters or whatever you can draw out of it and then make those books in themselves, really. So, um, but to me, it, it was just like a truly, you know, I think this book was just such a joy to write. Amy, one of my favorite parts of the Song of Songs is that line, Ani lado di vado di li, I am my beloved and my beloved's mine. Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that particular passage? I think that, it, that line encapsulates the message of scripture. I mean, that right there is the covenantal formula that we see, you know, from Genesis 17, 7 to Exodus 6, 7, Leviticus 26, 12, 2 Samuel, you know, it's just like Ezekiel, 2 Corinthians, we, we just have it all over scripture, Hosea, Isaiah, this whole covenantal formula of I will be your God, you will be my people. We see kind of three forms of it really um, in the song. We've got song 216 too. My love is mine and I'm his. He feeds among the lilies. Like she keeps saying this. I'm my love's and my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Um, I am my love, loves and his desire is for me, which I, I love that one because we see desire restored here. Here's this Genesis 316 
answered. Like here is the um, thwarted love of the woman towards the man. Um, here it is. It's not something that we need to be redeemed from. It's, it's something we need to be redeemed to and, and, and cultivated now. And so I just think that that, yeah, that just encapsulates God, Christ's whole mission um, in coming in, in incarnation and all of his work and then the ascension is, is that line right there, the covenantal love of God. And, and it, it does, it starts in Gen Genesis and that thread goes all the way through to Revelation, Christ and his people. Well, I mean, this is not the first time that you have ridden so eloquently uh, along these areas. I, and particularly, it seems like this is a continued book of, of a passion and desire to help reform the church. What do you what have you seen as the reception of of this this new um, this new writing? And uh, what are ways in which also you would want want the church to receive this wholeheartedly? Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, sadly this is controversial, and you know, and and sadly I am controversial. <laughs> um, you know, just. I think trying to critique from within my own circles, um, I found myself in a challenging spot. And, and it's interesting because when we talk about men and women in the church, there's such a broad spectrum, right? And we see a lot of the polarization from the extremes on, on both sides, but I think all of us are somewhere on the spectrum. You know, even if you, uh, you know, call yourself an egalitarian, you know, there's a broad spectrum of what that means too. And, and, and so I think I speak to the middle left and the middle right pretty well, you know, and I think that's a bigger group than uh, people want to recognize, you know, from the polar, the, those are the louder voices on the, on the polar sides, uh, you know, that, that tribal thing that, you know, you see people getting so angry about, but um, I think that the book has received really well in, in, in that middle, mid left, mid right section. Um, of people who I think are kind of tired of all the labeling and, and are frustrated in their churches and want to get to this meaningfulness part. Um, and so for that, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged to, to be hearing from, from those people. Um, I'm, I'm encouraged as a laywoman too, because I feel like it's important to have conversation between, you know, those in the pews and, and those who are ministering to them and then those in academia. Um, and sometimes it's easy to talk amongst one another, right? Like the, the lay resources might be the, the really light and fluffy and, and some, you know, a lot of times full of error. Um, and then in the academic resources might be so technical that they're not really reaching, you know, as far as you, you'd want their knowledge to reach. And, and so I think pastors can fill a gap there in a lot of ways, but um, especially in complementarian churches, for women particularly, we find find ourselves like, or I found myself <laughs> in, in history uh, to not be able to speak into that, um, to be a part of that, to be a contribution, to have that reciprocity that we see in scripture so much in like, you know, Romans 16 or 1 Corinthians 11, um, Ephesians 4. So I think that there's, you know, people very much wanting to, to move in this direction of, of that kind of reciprocity. Um, but then that also evokes a lot of anger and I get it pretty good. I get it. You know, I think that there was anticipation, um, especially knowing that I was addressing the song of songs. I don't know, you know, having written about male and female siblingship 
in the church and, and therefore friendship and, and promoting one another's purity, you know, that got received by some as like promoting affairs. Um, and then, you know, recovering from, you know, I, I would, you know, here I'm talking about promoting holiness in one another. And I've got people saying, oh, Bird is saying that men and women can have candlelight dinners in hotel rooms together and it's okay. Um, and, you know, which is not at all, uh, not at all what I was uh, saying. Men in recovering, you know, I just think that there were, you know, there are people who offended at all at the thought that there's anything wrong with the teaching of uh, quote unquote biblical manhood and womanhood. And that to critique that is to critique the Bible itself as if you put the word biblical in front of it and that makes it so. Um, and so, you know, I've been through some trouble and, my, you know, I've left my denomination over, you know, from the last book over trouble that I found myself in. And it wasn't just critique, it was you know, downright harassment um, at, at pretty big levels. And then trying to address that through the process of the church proved to show that the system itself is pretty um, infected and uh, very reductive of, of my personhood. And then I hear from so many others and documenting that so many others who've been through far worse and with no voice at all. And so I, I do have, I think, a group of readers who have been through spiritual abuse and find that these topics are really important because of you know, the consequences of our theology of man and woman that have led to a lot of abuse. And this isn't just in, you know, the denomination that I was in, but, you know, every denomination really, um, even in the egalitarian churches too. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's something that we need to re-examine more, like what is going on? Look at what our witness to Christ is here and, and how we're treating his beloved. What, what are we getting wrong here? Um, who do we, you know, need to be in conversation with about this? But even so with this book coming out, there was like anticipatory anger already. And so I've been receiving some of that. It's, it's crazy. Like I get on a regular basis and, and I still get surprised by some of it sometimes. Like there's these an anonymous accounts on Twitter that are very, you know, quote unquote brave, you know, because they don't have their names attached to what they're saying. And those are just downright vile. Some of what's been, I couldn't even repeat to you um, what's being said about me. It's very uh, sexually, you know, gross stuff. Um, and then, but then you've got those who are, you know, warning that I'm a wicked false teacher <laughs> and things like that. Uh, so they're taking, you know, what I would say is maybe second order issues, uh, and elevating them not only to first order issues, but also to moral, you know, it's a moral issue. Um, and so therefore I need to be identified and labeled as dangerous um, Jezebel. Um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, just this week, <laughs> I just was floored to see like on Wayne Grudem's social media account that here he is, um, you know, and these were words taken straight out of his new revised version of his book on doctrine and systematic theology um, out of all the people, out of all the scholars who have critiqued um, his teaching on eternal subordination of the son and, and before on his teaching, denying eternal generation um, and saying that, okay, that's not Nicene. Um, it did, I mean, the Trinity debate, quote unquote, of 2016 
did start on my blog. I invited a pastor to talk, pastor scholar to talk about this because I saw it as a, as a, a harmful teaching and that is permeating the church. Um, however, so many academics weighed in, a patristic scholars weighed in, even calling his writing daft. You know, I didn't do anything like that. And yet um, I am the only person that he decided to target in his, his systematic theology and his book on doctrine and the revisions. Uh, and he questions, he basically calls me a liar. He says, I'm breaking the ninth commandment by saying that his teaching wasn't in line with uh, Nicene Orthodoxy. So um, it becomes a moral issue again, but this was actually used to advertise his books. So he uses this quote, you know, or somebody uses this quote from his book. That is interesting because it's one thing to be critiqued. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, Bird's wrong here, you know, and this is why. Or to say, I disagree, and this is why. But to turn it into this moral issue and to narrow it down to just me and none of the others, um, well, that's interesting. And, you know, I even find myself as, you know, my family was visiting churches um, after we left our denomination. Here we are trying to heal um, after, you know, going through all this trauma. And this one, you know, wonderful little church that we started attending, you know, 50 people, maybe, uh, the pastor's talking about how, you know, he, he wants to lead the church into, into more theologically rich teaching and, um, start a, a small discipleship group for anyone interested, men or women. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is really nice. And, and then he gets the, the book they're going to use <laughs> and it's Wayne Grudem's revised systematic theology. <laughs> and so I just thought, Oh, I sunk in my seat, my stomach turned, my husband and I looked at each other because not only am I concerned about the teaching in it, but I have to bring this up. I can't just be quiet about it because, you know, lo and behold, once they get to page number, I don't know, 457, there gets my name, you know, he's casting shade on my integrity. So, you know, imagine their surprise when they get to that part. You know, I have to deal with this stuff. I just can't escape it. It's, it's just, even... Uh, you know how the publishers send out review copies for, you know, hoping people will do reviews of your book. And um, I've heard from somebody who tried to leave a review on Amazon and I was kind of I'm like, usually I have more reviews than this by now, you know, positive and negative, whatever. And uh, she tells me, Hey, I tried to leave a review and I got this message from Amazon. It's like an all red letters, like alert. That's uh, something about suspicious activity, you know, being submitted on reviews for this book and so they're only accepting reviews from verified purchases and I just thought are you kidding like so now it's being trolled on Amazon too and it hasn't affected like you know it's, it's kind of still holding strong as the number one new release but I just think what in the world like who I'm just a laywoman I, I don't belong to a particular organization institution not an academic. So it's just interesting to see like how much I smoke out that kind of uh, theology and, and uh, anger. Well, it's really ridiculous because, you know, you're far from idiosyncratic on this. There's so many scholars who disagree with him and, and the historic <laughs> church disagrees with him. So it, it's, <laughs> That's all I said. It, it, it's, it's, it's really, it's really 
quite ridiculous. But I hope if there's any, you know, kind of silver lining is that it might reflect the fact that he he knows people read your book. And, and so and so that's a that's a good that's maybe. a good thing. That's a good thing that people are reading Amy Bird. And so maybe that's why <laughs> he chose he chose you. But it's cowardly and ridiculous, frankly. But maybe 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 it, there's some kind of uh, acknowledgement that that you do have a prominent voice. Yeah, I mean, I think to the title's bold, like the sexual reformation wasn't my first choice you know, for a title. You need to think about marketing and these kind of things when you're writing a book. Um, but it's funny because the same thing happened with recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, not my first choice. And I wasn't going to take such a direct approach, but boy, I have been living the title of that book. Like I see how relevant that title is. And so now I stand behind the title even more. And I think you know, same with the sexual reformation, that's going to cause some pushback for sure when you're calling for something like a, reforma- a reformation in the way that we view sexuality in the church. And there's going to be people being like, hold up, Amy, what are you talking about? You know, and I just hope that people will read the book um, for what it is, you know, and not read into it what it isn't. You know, not that people have to agree with all my conclusions in there, but that it would, it would, First of all, I think ignite uh, a passion to, to go back into the Song of Songs. I hope that it would have people just be in awe and wonder of God's amazing love for us that we, you know, I think just have a few grains of sand of what, of what that is, you know, to, for us to really taste and see um, that. That would be my primary thing that I'd want. Of course, I, I, I want to restore the dignity and personhood of man and woman in the church very badly and outside of it. But I, I just want to get the conversation going. Like, I don't necessarily need uh, everyone to, to evaluate whether they agree with all my conclusions or not um, as much as I would just love. And, and that's why I usually have questions. I try to include questions that lead discussions and, you know, not questions that are like, you know, what does page 47 say, you know, but you're not regurgitating what I said, but okay, well, meditating on that. What do I think about this kind of questions? So, you know, I would love to see, you know, groups of people, you know, led in maybe small groups and churches going through the book, asking questions like that, because I do think wherever you are, egalitarian, complementarian, um, you know, just coming into the church as a new believer, I think these are important questions that everyone is looking at right now. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this is a framework that could really be good for discussion. Yeah, I just want to add too that for all the the trolls that are out there, there are at least just twice as many people who have really benefited from what you have done and just your service in writing. And I think your courage in doing it and your grace in doing it. But, and I, and I mean, as far as the gender conversations go and the things you bring up about friendship in the church and just different dynamics and um, how we think about men and women in the church. Like that whole conversation is obviously very, very important. I think that you have started and have offered a really helpful contribution to, but I also think especially with this book uh, and you started with your last book, but especially with this book, even just a a hermeneutical conversation that you're opening up. Yeah. I think it really changes the way we read scripture and it, you know, it is kind of a critique you know, I starting and recovering with, with, you know, this biblicist reading of scripture that we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, I, I try to take a much more biblical theological approach to hermeneutics in this book. And, you know, I was a little bit uh, nervous 
about that because here I think I'm asking very basic questions and pointing to basic longings and that um, you know regular lay people have in the church. However, the answers are very theological, you know, and and I think that they they just have us asking more questions <laughs> too. But um, and so then I you know I kind of wander into like how far can I go as a lay woman into th- this realm, you know, and and so I. I try to be well-read and, and converse with a lot of other people who are smarter than me. And, and I think that, that that is so wonderful too. It's like, I hope that people are reading the footnotes and going and, and reading those books and making their own connections as well. Yeah, I think it's fabulous. I think that bringing us into a way of reading scripture with the historic church, right? This is not like yes. some kind of new thing. We that need I'm to resource, doing. yeah. We're absolutely retrieving and reviving these mm-hmm. historic uh, Christian voices um, and, and across the globe as well, but you're inviting us to see the depths of scripture in a theologically and a textually rich way. And I think that is what people are craving more yes. craving like the systematic theology with the parentheses with all of the proof texts, in yes. <laughs> you know, um, but being able to just be invited into that story and it be yeah. a great love story of redemption. Uh, it's a kind of intimate longing and an inf- intimate invitation. And, and so I just really appreciate the hard work that you've done in this text to give us not just how to think about gender and sexuality, but also how to think about and commune with God through scripture. Thank you. I'm just so glad that you noticed that in there because, you know, that was, you know, the last two books I've been writing, that's been an aim for me in, in that and just showing that you know scripture is something that we read covenantally too with the with the Holy Spirit and He's still speaking to the churches today through His Word with His people, and we continue to be tradents of the faith in that way, brothers and sisters. So you know that's something that you know I'm really excited that you got that out of that. Well, Amy, thank you so much for for joining us again for this wonderful yes. conversation. It's, all, it's always it's always a delight to have you on, and we look forward to having you on again sometime. Thank you. I love talking with you all, and it's so neat to each time I get a different combination of people too. So I love how the dynamic changes that way. Mm-hmm.